Hey everybody, just a heads up with this episode. Um, about halfway through it and towards the end, we picked up some electronic interference in the microphones. Uh, we didn't hear it at the time of recording, and I did my best in the editing process to kind of minimize the sound. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have time to re-record the episode, so I had to send it out the way that it is. And I apologize, it gets kind of annoying after a while, but... Uh, Hopefully, it's barely perceivable in the background. Next time, I'll try to do a better job. Welcome to the True Crime Truckers podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. and welcome back to the True Crime Truckers podcast. This is part two of the mystery of D.B. or Dan Cooper. Once again, I'm joined by my wife, Amanda Gale. Hello. Okay, so the last time that we left off, we went over the crime and the jump and the initial investigation all the way up until they canceled uh, the investigation in 2016. Right. So what I've done is we're going to go over some suspects here in a little bit once we go over the physical evidence that they've had. I gave you a pen and paper. Oh, good. Just in case you want to jot down some notes, because at the end of it, I'm going to ask you who you think more closely resembles the prime suspect in the okay. case. Yeah, okay. this is good, because I have no memory, so I need to write things down. Awesome. Oh, and before we start, a note for listeners. Uh, I got several messages over the last episode uh, when I said that Dan Cooper jumped in between uh, Portland and Seattle, and I said, you know, it was he jumped into a rainforest, and I got a lot of people that said, they weren't in Mexico. It's not like he jumped in the Amazon. Uh- that's, that's right, because those are tropical rainforests. The Pacific Northwest is what's known as a rainforest because it's a forested area, and the amount of average rainfall per year makes it a rainforest. If it was in the tropics region of the world, then it would be a tropical rainforest. Oh, boy. Okay. Just to clear that up for some people, there were several people that were like, it's really? not a rainforest. Yes, and I'm like, okay. it is. It's not a tropical rainforest. Funny. Well... So, You learn something every day. The more you know. The official physical description of Dan Cooper has remained unchanged and is considered reliable. Flight attendants Schaffner and Mucklow, who spent the most time with Cooper, were interviewed on the same night in separate cities and gave nearly identical descriptions. Cooper was stated to be between 5 feet 10 inches and 5 feet 11 inches tall, in between 170 to 180 pounds. He was in his mid-40s, with close-set piercing brown eyes and swarthy skin. Swarthy skin? I I have no idea what swarthy means. What does swarthy mean? I'm going to look it up while you're talking. Okay. 
There were only four pieces of evidence. There were two definite and two potential that were linked to D.B. Cooper. And they have turned up from the years 1978. Dark skin. Okay. (laughs) So, like, he had tan. Okay. So he was tan. Yeah, or olive-complected, I guess. And those pieces of evidence showed up in between 1978 and 2017. The first one is in 1978, a placard printed with instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, well north of Lake Merwin, but within Flight 305's basic flight path. Okay. In February of 1980, 8-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, about 9 miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southwest of Ariel, Washington. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he raked the sandy riverbank to build a campfire. The bills were significantly disintegrated, but still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Two packets of $120 bills and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper In 1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. The FBI retained 14 examples as evidence. Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for about $37,000. To date, none of the 9,710 remaining bills have turned up anywhere in the world. Their serial numbers remain available online for public search. The Columbia River ransom money and the air stair instruction placard remain the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacking ever found outside the aircraft. In 2017, a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believe to be potential evidence, what appears to be a decades-old parachute strap, in the Pacific Northwest. This was followed later in August 2017 with a piece of foam suspected of being part of Cooper's backpack. So those are unconfirmed that those were actual evidence. Right. In late 2007, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from three organic samples found on Cooper's clip-on tie. In 2001, though they were later acknowledged that there is no evidence that the hijacker was the source of the sample material, The tie had two small DNA samples and one large sample, said Special Agent Fred Gutt. It's difficult to draw firm conclusions from these samples. Okay. So I assume that that means that they were three separate DNA samples. Right. They also made public the file of previously unreleased evidence, including Cooper's 1971 plane ticket. The price was $20. Oh my gosh paid in cash, and posted previously unreleased composite sketches and fact sheets along with a request to the general public for information which might lead to Cooper's positive identification. They also disclosed that Cooper chose the older of the two primary parachutes supplied to him, rather than the technically superior professional sport parachute, and that from the two reserve parachutes he selected a dummy an unusable unit with an inoperative ripcord intended for classroom demonstrations. Although it had clear markings identifying it to any experienced skydivers as non-functional, he cannibalized the other functional reserve parachute, possibly using its shrouds to tie the money bag shut and to secure the bag to his body as witnessed by Mucklow. Okay, so he used the usable spare parachute to, like, tie the stuff to his body. Yes, and the dummy reverse shoe he, he strapped to himself. That's the only one he strapped to himself? No, he had a primary. Okay, his primary. Skydiver, that's what skydivers I always use two shoes. Right, that's A primary what I and a reserve. Right, that's what I thought. Okay. So he strapped a primary to himself, but, but the, the, but the reserve was the one was a okay. dummy used for training. 
okay. like how to fold your right. the working okay. parts and stuff in it. But it wasn't. And they're saying if anyone, if he was any kind of experienced diver at all, he would have known that. Yes. Okay. Because it was clearly marked. Okay. Did they do that on purpose? What? Clearly mark it as a dummy shoot and give it to him. Like, I try to. That I don't know. I'm curious. I know that he rejected the original because they were going to give him military parachutes. Right. And so With they the had. automatic. And yes. he was to know he, he yes. wants a manual report. So they, I think they had to scramble to, and they, so they went to a skydiving school. So they may have just grabbed whatever mm-hmm. okay. shoots they could get. And yeah. one of them happened to be a dummy right. shoot. Okay. But I don't know. They might have done it on purpose, but I'm not sure. So, in March of 2009, the FBI disclosed that Tom Kay, a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle, had assembled a team of citizen sleuths, including scientific illustrator Carol Abrasinskas and metallurgist Alan Stone. The group, eventually known as the Cooper Research Team, investigated important components of the case using GPS, satellite, imagery, and other technologies available. Um, Although little new information was gained regarding the burial ransom money or Cooper's landing zone, they were able to find and analyze hundreds of minute particles on Cooper's tie. Uh, Lycopodium spores, likely from a pharmaceutical product, were identified as well as fragments of bismuth and aluminum. In November 2011, K announced that particles of pure unalloyed titanium had also been found on the tie. Uh, he explained that titanium, which was much rarer in the 1970s than in the 2010s, was at that time only in metal fabrication or production facilities or at chemical companies using it, combined with aluminum to store extremely corrosive substances. Okay. So finding titanium on his tie was a very rare thing. The findings suggested that Cooper may have been a chemist or a metallurgist, or possibly an engineer or manager, the only employees who wore ties in such facilities at that time, in a metal or chemical manufacturing plant, or at a company that recovered scrap metals from those types of factories. In January of 2017, Kay reported that rare earth minerals such as cerium and strontium sulfide, excuse me if I'm messing these up, I've never heard of these before, had also been identified among particles from the tie. One of the rare applications for such elements in the 1970s was Boeing's supersonic transport development project, suggesting the possibility that Cooper was a Boeing employee. Other possible sources of the material include plants that manufactured cathode ray tubes, such as the Portland firms Teledyne and Tektronics. In 1976, discussions arose over impending expiration of the statute of limitations on the hijacking. Most published legal analysts agree that it would make little difference as interpretation of the statute varies considerably from case to case and court to court and prosecutors could argue that Cooper had forfeited immunity on any of several valid technical grounds. The question was rendered irrelevant in November when a Portland grand jury returned an indictment in absentia against John Doe, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, for air piracy and violation of the Hobbs Act. The indictment formally initiated prosecution that can be continued should the hijacker be apprehended at any time in the future. Okay. So that's why, like, most times, like, you know, with a robbery, there's a statute of limitations. And if you're not arrested and convicted of the crime within the crime limit, you get away with it. Right. Well, since they prosecuted or indicted in absentia, meaning, you know, he's fled, fled, they can prosecute at any time. Okay. So Should should, should he turn up or, yeah. Right. Okay, so let's take a look at our suspects. Now, there are numerous, numerous suspects out there. Okay. Um, well, well more than we could go through tonight. So I picked a handful of them 
okay. that I think are best representative of people that could be considered prime suspects. Okay. But this in no means is all of the suspects right. that there are. Okay. So if people want to look up the other suspects that there are, if you think of any that you think would be a better suspect, you can always email me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com. And let me know who you think D.B. Right. Cooper was. So the first one is Kenneth Christensen. Christensen enlisted in the Army in 1944 and was trained as a paratrooper. The war had ended by the time he was deployed in 1945, but he made occasional training jumps while stationed in Japan with occupation forces in the late 1940s. After leaving the Army, he joined Northwest Orient in 1954 as a mechanic in the South Pacific and subsequently became a flight attendant and then a purser based in Seattle. What's a purser? A person on a ship or plane principally responsible for the handling of money on board. Oh, okay. 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 So, like a purse. Okay. Purser. Right. Okay. So, he was in the Army, he was a paratrooper. And he worked for Northwest Orient. Mm -hmm. Christensen was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking, but he was shorter at 5 foot 8 inches and thinner at about 150 pounds and lighter complected than the eyewitnesses' descriptions. Christensen smoked, as did the hijacker, and displayed a particular fondness for bourbon, Cooper's preferred beverage. He was also left-handed, and evidence photos of Cooper's black tie show that the tie clip applied from the left side, suggesting a left-handed wearer. Schaffner told a reporter that photos of Christensen fit her memory of the hijacker's appearance more closely than any others that she had been shown, but she could not conclusively identify him. Christensen reportedly had purchased a house with cash a few months after the hijacking, and while dying of cancer in 1994, he told his brother, There's something you should know, but I cannot tell you. After Christensen's death, family members discovered gold coins and a valuable stamp collection, along with over $200,000 in a bank account. They also found a folder of Northwest Orient news clippings, which began about the time that he was hired in the 1950s and stopped just prior to the date of the hijacking. Despite the fact that the hijacking was by far the most momentous news event in the airline's history, Christensen continued to work part-time for the airline for many years after 1971, but apparently never clipped another Northwest news story. Research by Internet Web Sleuths would later uncover proof that Christensen did not pay cash for the house he bought after the hijacking, but instead had a mortgage on the house and took 17 years to pay it off. So that's a common misconception right. with right. his, okay. is that he paid cash. He did not. The same search would also uncover proof that Christensen had sold off almost two dozen acres of land for $17,000 per acre in the mid-90s, thus accounting for the large sum of money in his account at the time of his death. Okay. Despite the publicity generated by 2011 television documentary The FBI is Standing by Its Position, that Christensen cannot be considered a prime suspect. It cites a poor match to the eyewitness's physical description, a level of skydiving expertise above that predicted by their suspect profile, and an absence of direct incriminating evidence. Yeah. Okay. Mm. okay. Well, he doesn't sound too good to me. Mm. Alright. So let's go with Lynn Doyle Cooper. L.D. Cooper, a leather worker and Korean War veteran, was proposed as a suspect in July of 2011 by his niece, Marla Cooper. As an eight-year-old, she recalled Cooper and another uncle planning something very mischievous involving the use of an expensive walkie-talkie at her grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon, which is 150 miles southeast of Portland. The next day, Flight 305 was hijacked, and though the uncles ostensibly were turkey hunting 
L.D. Cooper came home wearing a bloodied shirt as the result, he said, of an auto accident. Later, she said her parents came to believe that L.D. Cooper was the hijacker. She also huh. recalled that her uncle, who died in 1999, was obsessed with the Canadian comic book hero Dan Cooper and had one of his comic books thumbtacked to his wall, although he was not a skydiver or paratrooper. So this Dan Cooper comic book, the guy was like a spy, like secret agent spy thing. It was a Canadian comic, and the character's name was Dan Cooper. Okay. And he used to fly planes and skydive out of them. He was like a paratrooper yeah. and stuff like that. Okay. In August of 2011, New York Magazine published an alternative witness sketch, reportedly based on description by Flight 305 eyewitness Robert Gregory depicting horned-rimmed sunglasses and a russet-colored suit jacket with wide lapels and a marcelled hair. The article notes that L.D. Cooper had wavy hair that looked marcelled. The FBI announced that no fingerprints had been found on a guitar strap made by L.D. Cooper that they obtained. One week later, they added that his DNA did not match the partial DNA profile obtained from the hijacker's tie, but acknowledged once again that there is no certainty that the hijacker was the source of the organic material obtained from the tie. The Bureau has made no further public comment. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So her parents, so L.D. Cooper's sibling and in-law, or whatever, came to believe that he was the hijacker. Yes, and his niece was the one that first came to the FBI, naming him as a suspect. After he died. After he died. A full mm. 12 years after he right. died. Right, right. Because he died in 99 and she came forward. But he had no airline experience, no skydiving right. experience, yeah. no nothing. Um, yeah, no, I can't imagine. I can't imagine someone that doesn't have any kind of experience would have done this. So, so then we'll go on to suspect number three. Okay. Barbara Dayton. Barbara? Barb. Babs? Babs. Okay. Babs Dayton, a recreational pilot. Barbara Jr. And University of Washington librarian who was born Robert Dayton in 1926, served in the U.S. Merchant Marine and the Army during World War II. After discharge, Dayton worked with explosives in the construction industry and aspired to a professional airline career, but could not obtain a commercial pilot's license. Dayton underwent gender reassignment surgery in 1969 and adopted the name Barbara, claiming to have staged the Cooper hijacking two years later, disguised as a man to get back at the airline industry and the FAA, whose insurmountable rules and conditions had prevented her from becoming an airline pilot. Dayton said that the ransom money was hidden in a cistern near Woodburn, a suburban area south of Portland, but eventually recanted the entire story, ostensibly after learning that the hijacking charges could still be brought. The FBI has never commented publicly on Dayton, who died in 2002. So she had a private pilot's license. She couldn't secure a commercial pilot's license. But she would have known about aircraft. Right. Especially if she was trying to obtain a commercial driver's or commercial pilot's license. Right. She would have known how to lower she would have, everything and how to do She all would have had that. to study airline right. regulations and planes and stuff right. in order to receive a commercial pilot's license. Okay. okay. That's all I have on Barbara Dayton.
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So we're going to go on to suspect number four. Okay. Who is Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. McCoy was an Army veteran who served two tours of duty in Vietnam. First as a demolition expert and later with the Green Berets as a helicopter pilot. After his military service, he became a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard and an avid recreational skydiver, with aspirations, he said, of becoming a Utah State Trooper. On April 7, 1972, McCoy staged the best-known of the so-called copycat hijackings, he boarded United Airlines Flight 855 in Denver, Colorado, and brandishing what later proved to be a paperweight resembling a hand grenade and an unloaded handgun, he demanded four parachutes and $500,000. After delivery of the money and parachutes at San Francisco International Airport, McCoy ordered the aircraft back into the sky and bailed out over Provo, Utah leaving behind his handwritten hijacking instructions and his fingerprints on a magazine he had been reading. Later, a handwriting expert compared the notes found on the plane with McCoy's writing on a military service record and determined that McCoy had written the note. He was arrested on April 9th with the ransom cash in his possession and after a trial and convicted, received a 45-year sentence. Two years later, he escaped from Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary and with several accomplices uh, by crashing a garbage truck through the main gate, was tracked down three months later in Virginia Beach, and McCoy was killed in a shootout with FBI agents. Mm. In their 1991 book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, parole officer Bernie Rhodes and former FBI agent Russell Calmain asserted that they had identified McCoy as Cooper. They cited obvious similarities in the two hijackings, claims by McCoy's family that the tie and the mother of Pearl tie clip left on the plane belonged to McCoy, and McCoy's own refusal to admit or deny that he was Cooper. Although there is no reasonable doubt that McCoy committed the Denver hijacking, the FBI does not consider him a suspect in the Cooper case because of significant mismatches in age and description, a level of skydiving skill well above what was thought to be possessed by the hijacker, and credible evidence that McCoy was in Las Vegas on the day of the Portland hijacking and at home in Utah the day after, having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Okay. So McCoy was an avid skydiver, he was a helicopter pilot, and he committed what was considered a copycat hijacking, like, less than a year later. So, why do they think, other than, um, other than the dummy parachute issue, why do they think that he was more of a novice Uh, because the, he took the older of the two parachutes instead of the new, more technologically advanced shoots, and because he took the dummy shoot. Okay. See, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't think necessarily about that he didn't have the skill for the new, you know, technologically advanced parachute. This whole time, I've sort of been thinking, like, he wanted to make sure it was the one with the ripcord, because what if they gave him a parachute that was, you know, they, they defected, that they... You know what I'm saying? So, like, that to me is where my mind goes, is he wants one that he has to actually... I mean, granted, they could have defected any of the parachutes, Or maybe but, he was more comfortable with an older-style parachute. Right. I mean, you use what you're comfortable with using, and if he was trained with an older-style parachute, right. maybe. Right. And especially, I mean, you're jumping at night. Right. So you're in inclement weather... Right. So you're basically doing it by muscle memory. 
So right. you probably want the shoot that you're most comfortable to use. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I guess I would feel like maybe that is actually someone that's a little bit more experienced. You know, like you said, like it's like muscle memory. They mm-hmm. just they know what they need to do, how they need to yep. exactly at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, that I don't know. That to me seems like maybe there's more experience there. Okay, all right. Okay. Last one. Yep, we're gonna go with our last suspect, suspect okay. number five. Okay. Who is Robert Rackstraw? Robert what? Rackstraw. R-A-C-K-S-T-R-A-W, Rackstraw. Okay. Robert Wesley Rackstraw was a retired pilot and ex-convict who served on an Army helicopter crew and other units during the Vietnam War. He came to the attention of Cooper Task Force in February of 1978 after he was arrested in Iran and deported to the U.S. to face explosives possession and check-kiting charges. Several months later, while released on bail, Rackstraw attempted to fake his own death by radioing a false mayday call and telling controllers that he was bailing out of a rented plane over Monterey Bay. Police later arrested him in Fullerton on an additional charge of forging federal pilot certificates. The plane he claimed to have ditched was found, repainted, and in a nearby hangar. Cooper investigators noted his physical resemblance to Cooper's composite sketches, although he was only 28 in 1971. He had military parachute training and a criminal record, but he was eliminated as a suspect in 1979 after no direct evidence of his involvement could be found. In 2016, Rackstraw reemerged as a suspect in a History Channel program and book. On September 8th of 2016, Thomas J. Colbert, the author of the book and attorney Mark Zaid, filed a lawsuit to compel the FBI to release its Cooper case file under the Freedom of Information Act. The suit alleges that FBI suspended active investigation of the Cooper case in order to undermine the theory that Rackstraw is D.B. Cooper, so as to prevent embarrassment for the Bureau's failure to develop evidence sufficient to prosecute him for a crime. A June 2018 article circulated claiming private investigators decoded a previously publicly unknown letter on file with the FBI which purportedly includes a disguised confession. In January of 2018, Tom and Donna Colbert reported that they had obtained a letter originally written in December of 1971 and says that the codes it contains were deciphered and matched to three units Rackstraw was a part of while in the Army, and the FBI refused to acknowledge the findings because it would have to admit that the amateur sleuths had cracked the case that the Bureau couldn't. Mm. One of the Flight 305 flight attendants reportedly did not find any similarities between photos of Rackstraw from the 1970s and her recollection of Cooper's appearance. Rackstraw's attorney called the renewed allegations, quote, the stupidest thing I have ever heard, unquote. And Rackstraw himself told People.com, Quote, it's a lot of expletive, and they know it is, unquote. The FBI declined to further comment. Uh, Rackstraw stated in 2017 phone interview that he lost his job over the 2016 investigations. When approached by Colbert about the claims that he was D.B. Cooper, quote, I told everybody I was the hijacker, unquote, Rackstraw said, before explaining the admission was a stunt. Rackstraw died on July 9th of 2019. Mm. So this suspect had was a pilot. Right. Had parachute knowledge. And as soon as, as early as 1978 was a suspect from the FBI in the hijacking case. Yeah. I don't know. I think I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go with Richard McCoy. Richard I, McCoy? Yeah. I mean, I think frankly, I don't, I don't. Well, he did commit a similar hijacking. I don't know. I mean, I don't... There's a lot of things that I feel like came up in a lot... In, like, different um, suspects. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, they're saying that, you know, they think that possibly the, the D.B. Cooper was, you know, left-handed. 
Um, that's just one thing, but that wasn't, nothing was drawn between any of the, any of the other suspects. Um, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm just going to stick with Richard McCoy Jr., but I really don't. Are you basing it solely on the fact that he committed a similar hijacking? No, I, no, not really. I mean, I think he, yeah, he's a, he's a skydiver. Yeah, he did commit one similar. Um, yeah. So maybe he thought, well, I got away with it once, so yeah. I can get away with it the, again. The, the thing that kind of turns me off on the idea of McCoy being D.B. Cooper is the fact of how meticulous D.B. Cooper was. Yeah. He asked for the note back so they don't have any handwriting from D.B. Cooper. But McCoy left his ransom note with them. I mean, I don't he think left, it, he left a magazine with his fingerprints. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think it was him. I just think out of the five that you gave me, yeah. he would be the most likely, yeah. but I don't, I really don't think it was, I don't think it was him. No. Um, well, let me ask you then, what do you think happened to Dan Cooper? I mean, I think he made out with the money. I, I don't know. If maybe some of it came loose, and that's how that kid came about finding it, you know? So some of it could have come loose in some way and ended up making it down to where it to where it was, and then that's how that kid found it. Found by the Columbia River. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about the geography of the area. I feel like I need to have, well, you know, the, some information the area... like that. But if they know it was, it, it was a cache, so it doesn't matter... Yes. It was the cash. So I think, I think, I think he just made out with the rest of it. I mean, I don't know what he would have done with it. Which one was it that had a bunch of uh, like gold coins and things like that? I was actually watching this thing the other day. That was the that first was question. Kenneth Christensen. Yes. Yeah, he had large coins. Told his brother, you know, I need to tell you something, and never did. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be anything, right? No, I know. Um, and the gold and the cash and stuff was that he had property that he right. sold off at seven. Well, I was watching this thing the other day. I can't remember which one it was, but I was watching this thing the other day about <laughs> this guy who uh, worked uh, just recently, like the past ten years or whatever. He was murdered by his business partner out in California, and he was like a, kind of a conspiracy theorist, and so he actually invested like got, took a lot of his money and bought gold coins with it and things it's like the that. The smartest so, thing they say you can do with your right, money. Right, so that's always, what he did. It always retains value. Right, so that's what he did. Um I don't know, I think he I think he had a lot of knowledge. I think he had to have had to have had multiple people helping him, you know, knowing when he was going to jump, knowing generally where he was gonna jump. I mean I th- he had to have had intimate knowledge of that area um i don't know i just i think he i think he made it out and i think he made it down here and had someone pick him up or made it somewhere to where someone could pick him up um i mean he didn't have any clothes i remember you saying that he didn't have any clothes with him so he he had to have had someone that was waiting for him in in a certain area um you know, and I think he made out with it. Now, what he did with the money, I don't know. But, I mean, I think he I think he just got away with it. Like I said, I think that's the most likely for me out of the ones that you mentioned. Um, but I, I don't know if he did it either. I don't particularly think so. But I think he may be the most likely out of the five that you gave me. Okay. So McCoy is your most likely suspect. I guess so, yeah. Would you like to hear what I think about the case? Sure. I think Dan Cooper died. You do? I don't think he was an experienced skydiver. I think that he may have worked for the airline industry. He certainly knew enough about airline procedures and how a 727 works. Uh, However, I don't think that he had very much, if any skydiving experience um, because again he grabbed the older of the parachutes and grabbed a dummy chute which if he had skydiving experience he would have known that that was a dummy chute he brought no clothes for the weather Yeah, it was Thanksgiving weekend in the Pacific Northwest in a rainstorm 
jumping from 10,000 feet in the dark. And I think that what happened was either when he jumped out, I mean, think about how cold it would be at 10,000 feet. Yeah. As you're, you have no gloves or anything and you're supposed to grip a grip cord and pull it. Your hands are going to be freezing at that point. At 10,000 feet with the wind and the rain and the it's November. Yeah. You you have no equipment to jump at that altitude at that time of year in that kind of weather. And I think he either A, didn't get his ripcord open and he just plummeted. Or B, he did get it and he ended up where he landed was in a body of water. And he either got tangled up in the chute, or the weight from the money weighted him down, or by the time he tried to make it to shore, hypothermia set it, and he died. But... My reason being is because in 1980, when the money was found, it was found downstream from where he was at. But all three bundles were found together, and no other money was found. What are the odds that if he made it out and just some of the money fell out of the, the sack that had the money in it, that all three of them would find the same exact spot in a sandbar, like 20 miles downstream from where they think the landing is? What are the odds that all three bundles would be in the same spot? Or is it more, more of a likely that all the money came down to that area at the same time, and then the bag opened up in that area, and three of them floated towards the side. I don't know. I think... I don't know. I I kind of disagree. I think maybe it's more along the lines of that it fell out as he was jumping, or as, you know, something, and that just it happened to end up... It's 20 miles from where his drop zone would be at. There's no way that three bundles oh, yeah. of cash would make it 20 miles away. Okay, but it could have from landed 10, close feet. to where he actually landed and went downstream. They, no, where the area where they were found was nowhere near where they know the area of the drop zone to be. Okay, but you're saying they floated downstream. Yes. So why couldn't they have floated downstream from where he... From the area And they all landed? three of them... Landed in the exact same spot. I'm not saying landed. You're saying they floated. You think they yes, floated and the where they landed on the sandbar, they landed. They were all three together in the same exact spot. Okay. What are the odds that tw- on a 20 mile trip downstream, three separate bundles of cash would end up in the same exact area? Over a 20-mile journey, if I set three paper boats in a creek and let them go at the same time, there is not a snowball's chance in hell that all three of those paper boats would end up in the same exact spot when they came to rest somewhere. Isn't that what you just said you think happened, though? No, what I think is that they were all still attached to his body. His body floated downstream. And the Columbia River at that point was a major shipping port for Vancouver and the Pacific Northwest. I think his body floated down and got entangled with a ship. And the Columbia River leads to the Pacific Ocean. I think his body got tangled up in the propeller. It ripped the bag open. Three of the bundles made it to shore. The rest of them went wherever. And his body was carried out to sea. And that's why nobody's ever found him or any evidence of him. And why nobody's ever found any money but those three bundles. But it makes me wonder. I mean, I think he died during the jump. But, okay, I could understand if his body, you know, just ended up drifting and things like that. But, I mean, it had a humongous parachute attached to it. Okay. So it just disappeared. No one noticed that. You know, if it got tangled up in a ship, there's people on the ship. There's people on, on you know. And a, ship's, just, a large ship's propeller will just tear up. I know, uh, but I'm saying they didn't, no one saw it. 
before it. I mean, I don't know. I just well, think of what if the ship was heading to like China or something? Is leaving the Pacific Northwest and heading to China over that course of that entire trip, probably the whole body would have been gone. Well, yeah, point. I know. And maybe it was a foreign ship, and they wouldn't know anything about it, really. They certainly wouldn't have heard about it until after they got back, and yeah. They think his body was carried out to sea by the water. Was it? I don't know. That seems... Because a bag of money, the bag of money would not have floated downstream all by itself. The money wouldn't float, it would sink. Am I here to give you my opinion, or am I here to listen to the only that you can I'm telling you my opinion. (laughs) I know. So the so if the bag would have floated downstream, and that's how all three bundles, it would have had to have been attached to his body, because the bag of money wouldn't be buoyant; it would sink. But his body would be buoyant, buoyant enough to carry the whole bag down until it ripped open for some reason, like the body got entangled in the propeller of the ship. Mm, fair enough. That's what I think happened to him. I mean, you think he survived, and a lot of people do. I don't think he made. It through that jump. I don't think he, I think. I just think it would be really odd that after all of that, and uh, that after all of that, I mean, nothing was recovered outside of those three bundles. I don't know. I just find that a little bit harder to swallow that nothing, uh, nothing was ever found of, you know, this okay. dummy parachute, this huge parachute, all the other, I don't know. I it just, was carried out to sea. I mean, it, it, we still haven't found that Malaysian airline. The whole airplane that's gone in the Indian Ocean. That yeah, how many years it, has it been? No, we, I know. They haven't that, found not one piece of cargo, a scrap of the plane. They never found an oil slick, and that's a plane. Yeah. Think about how hard it would be to find a parachute or a body in an ocean. Oh, yeah, but it didn't. He didn't go down in the ocean. No, but the Columbia River, where the money was found, leads to the ocean. I know. And you saying that like. Well, they didn't find any other bundles of money. They didn't find any other money. He survived the whole thing and never used any of the money that he hijacked. They were looking for this money for 40-some years. They've never found not one other bill except for the three bundles that they I found know, in 1980. I I mean, did he just make it out of the country and, and use money elsewhere? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but even if he made it out of the country, though that currency would have made it back to the United States. Yeah. American currency always makes That's its bad. way back. And they would have been able to trace the serial numbers. Nobody's ever seen not one single twenty dollar bill aside from the two hundred and ninety bills that that kid found in nineteen eighty. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either, and that's one of the major mysteries, is nobody knows what I mean, happened. But didn't, didn't you say that other people have done that jump? Yes, but they have their experience, skydivers, they've done it with the proper equipment, and not, like, not. I, I don't know if they've done it, like, in the rain, at night, wearing exactly what he wore, and all of the people that have done the jump are experienced skydivers. Mm. If he wasn't an experienced skydiver, think about how difficult it would be for an inexperienced person to skydive during the know, daylight and perfect I'm conditions. I think he was an experienced skydiver. That's why. I think he would have picked the better shoots. And I think he would have known that, that his reserve shoot was going to be a dummy. Why would you take a dummy shoot? I mean, everybody messes up, right? Isn't that how people get caught? You can be a serial killer for 40 years and eventually you mess up. So I don't know. I mean, he, but if he knew I have to jump at this point at this time, right? He could have also been in a hurry at the same time as well. Like I have to be here or in this area to jump at this time at this place Mm -hmm. because the people on the ground that are waiting for me or whatever are in this area, there's a short window of time with how fast these planes move, right? There's a short window of time. So, I mean, that could have been a slip up. That is true. Mm -hmm. However, they mark these dummy parachutes 
and they're the same. It's the same markings uh, all over the world. It's it. They don't write like dummy. There's a marking on it that's clearly visible. So if you're French, if you're Indonesian, if you're you know Somali, everybody who Indonesian is Indonesian and Somali is where you go. <laughs> I'm saying. I know. It was just. Random I'm just countries. saying, like, if you don't speak the same language, right. it they're all still clearly marked the same way as this is a dummy shoot. Right. An experienced skydiver would know that. Why would you take a reserve shoot? Because if your primary doesn't work, you have to pull your reserve. Why would you take a dummy as your reserve shoot? Because then you only have one working parachute. I think an experienced skydiver would know and would look for that. And I'm sure it's probably clearly labeled so that you know that it's a dummy shoot. I'm sure they make it abundantly clear with whatever... I don't know what the marking is. But I would assume it is highly visible. This is a dummy shoot. So that way you know not to take that shoot on a skydiving expedition. I'm sure it is more than clearly like some sort of a symbol that's probably quite large on the pack. Yeah, I mean, I would be curious to see that. I don't know. I mean, I feel like any anything that's said, there's a counter to it. I mean, that's why this And that's been, why it's a big mystery, that's yeah. That's why this has been such a big mystery, so, yeah. you know. I just think that there's an, an experienced skydiver would know that, and an and an experienced skydiver would have taken the more modern and better parachute. Well, like I said, maybe he wanted to try to ensure that it was more of a manual thing. So Mm -hmm. if they did try to uh, alter it in any way Mm -hmm. where he wouldn't make it, he has a manual ripcord ready to go. I don't know. So that's one for he made it, and that's one for he didn't. Right. So why don't you guys out there let us know what you think happened to Dan, a.k.a. D.B. Cooper. You can send me a message on the Facebook group. You can send me a message through Instagram at michael.prit81. Or you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com. And let me know, do you think that D.B. Cooper survived his jump and escaped with the money? Or do you think that maybe he was just a novice with an idea to rob a plane and didn't survive the jump or the trek out of the woods in the Pacific Northwest? As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Trucker Podcast Group. You can also join Age of Radio's Facebook group at Addicted to Podcasting. This is a group dedicated to the show hosts and fans of Age of Radio shows. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash truecrimetruckers There you can browse the bazaar where you can purchase items from our wonderful sponsors as well as browse other shows on the Age of Radio Syndicate. Also, if you'd like to donate to the show, and get yourself a podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com slash truecrimetruckerspodcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. So until then, stay safe.